Father, as we gather this morning before you, we trust that your Holy Spirit is here in our midst, that you are opening our eyes to see what is true about you, what is true about ourselves, how in fact you are at work in our lives, and we pray that as we turn to this psalm, that you would give us ears to hear what is true, Lord. You would give us ears to perceive our own life in light of what is true. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're continuing our study in the book of Psalms, uh, specifically book three in the Psalms, and we've come this morning to Psalm 76, so I want to encourage you uh, to take your Bibles and open with me to Psalm 76. And would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a psalm. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war, Silah. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Salah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please have a seat. Well, I have, my story is probably not too unfamiliar to some of you. Uh, when I was in school, grade school especially, in high school, I was, I was one of those math geeks. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot of you here because I know a lot of you are engineers. So math was your thing. Science came as easily as well. So those things just seemed to be right. They just seemed to be normal. They seemed to be things that you ought to spend your life pursuing. But the other things... Things that were more subjective in nature, well, those were things that, you know, as a kid, I tried to avoid. And I'm guessing that a lot of you as engineers were kind of like that. You liked things that were concrete, things that you could count on. They were either right or they were wrong, and there was no subjectivity in the midst of them. There was no gray areas. That's what I love about mathematics. There's no gray area. You're either right with the answer or you're wrong with the answer. Unlike if you happen to write a report for someone or give a book report and you give it to your, to your teacher who can, is very subjective in the way they grade it. Well, this is right. Well, why is this right? Well, you said it in a, in a good way. You said it in an effective way. It's all subjective in nature. And that's a very hard thing to deal with when you're a kid and everything uh, that you excel in has to do with facts and concrete things. And like many of you, however, by the time I got to college, I mean, this, this is why I chose a path of engineering for my degree when I went to college and did graduate with an electrical engineering degree. But by the, the last couple of years of college, things started to change a little bit. As I had done everything I could to, to not have to take a single course that I was going to write a paper. 
I was almost successful in getting all the way through college without doing that, uh, but I just dreaded the idea of doing that. And some of you can relate. It's the, it's the idea that you don't know what to write because you have to be so precise because there's only one right way to do things. That's what mathematics teaches you. So to write and to sit there in front of your computer or wherever it is you write your typewriter and just stare at it because you don't know the right words because there's more than one way to say things. And that's hard. But by the end of that, you know, end of that college years, and for me perhaps it was a little later after I graduated from college, it was as, it was as though the left brain woke up. Maybe it had finally you know, started, maybe it had just, I don't know, been born for the first time. It was as though I was starved for things that were less concrete, shall we say. I was starved to get into discussions that had to do with philosophy, that had to do with ideologies, that had to do with concepts, that had to do with abstract ideas. I mean, it's eventually what pushed me to go to seminary, because I wanted to study the nature of God. I wanted to study theology. You know, these things that are not concrete, that we have to reason, that we have to discuss, that we have to argue, and we have to explore and try to understand the nature of life. You've probably been there. I mean, I think it's why, I think a lot of people's brains develop that way. Your right side is, tends to develop where you, you want the concrete things first, and then eventually that left brain starts to come alive, starts to grow up, and you start to wonder as you try to fit things in life, uh, fit things that you have discovered about life into finding meaning, which, of course, can seem like a very subjective thing to pursue. And I, I think, really, when we see what happens often in colleges today, that ideologies are, are proliferating. It's the place where people are starting to wonder and explore and get their abstract minds at work so that they can explore why do we exist? Why are we here? What's the meaning and purpose of life? Now, when it comes to theology, when it comes to religion, people love to do those kinds of things. They like to discuss those things as an intellectual endeavor because it's satisfying that that philosophical, that left-brain-starve area of your being. I'd be curious if I raise how many of you engineers went through that same thing. Do we have people in here whose right brains were overdeveloped in school and then their left brain suddenly started to try and counterbalance things? Am I the only one? Surely there's some other engineers in here that were like that. So you, you know what I'm talking about. What, what's great about our faith when you read scriptures like this, that we find that our faith is not just a philosophy that makes sense. I mean, it is that. It is a philosophy. It is a worldview that explains life. But it's not only that. Because if it were only that, we could simply exist in the realm of ideas, stay in the classroom, and discuss all these different religions on an equal footing. But they don't all have an equal footing. Because the one thing that, that the Christian faith has that not all of these religions have is it has a root in real history. Real history that impacts the way we understand the world. And it's, it's great to sit and discuss ideologies and their merit and to try to trace down the logic and the reason to get to the root of things. But unless that logic and reason can include real history, then you're never going to wind up in the right place. I, I think when we 
see a lot of what happens in you know, the college world today where ideologies begin to take root. There is at the same time a, a desire to promote ideologies and philosophies in college while there is a denigration of history. Have you noticed that those things, two things go hand in hand? If we're going to show that history is less important, that means we can talk about ideologies that don't have to be grounded in real historical events. But history is important. History is important for us to understand our own faith. And the, the same thing was to be true in the days of the Old Testament. I mean, I, I like what Paul has to write about philosophy. We read this in Colossians chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I think it's why we can find places in Scripture like we see in Psalms, like we see in Proverbs that say the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And how do we know that the Lord is to be feared? How do we know that the Lord is to be feared? Well, because history, history shows us that. Real historical events, when the Lord himself has gotten involved, teach us that he is to be feared. So if you want to begin to talk about ideologies, talk about philosophy, talk about where to begin to understand and make sense of the world, you have to start with truths that are evident from real history. So I want to look at one of those lessons, because that's what the psalmist is doing in this psalm. He's reflecting on a past event and deriving from what he sees from that past event truths that he can discern about God. And if these things are true about God, then it has implications for the way in which he and the people who are singing this song are to live. So we start with a real historical event. We derive from that some truths about God. And then we learn the implications of what that means for the way we are to live. That's kind of the path that we're going to take as we look at this psalm. So first of all, let's begin reading and see what he has to say, because the event he talks about or he describes in a poetic fashion in verses 1 through 6. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. Now this is not just some metaphorical discussion of an ideology about God. Here he's talking about things that have happened in Israel's past that, that were rooted in history. What do we see? Well, he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war in verse 3. Verse 5, the stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. I mean, I know sometimes psalms will be somewhat generic, so you're not really sure exactly the historical event that they're talking to. But clearly he's talking about some historical event here, something that happened to an enemy that was visible, that was evident, that stripped them of their power. As we read uh, about the historical events in the Bible, the one that seems to best fit 
what the psalmist is talking about is something that happened during the day of King Hezekiah of Judah. Now, King Hezekiah of Judah uh, lived at the same time that the northern kingdom of Israel, it was the time when, when Israel and Judah had split after their civil war, and the northern ten tribes of the nation of Israel had been carried away captive by an enemy conqueror, the Assyrian forces. And as they had come and conquered Israel and carried them away, they came seeking to do the same thing to the nation of Judah. And this particular event takes place in the life of when King Hezekiah was reigning, and it's described in multiple places. You can read about it in the book of Kings and also in the book of Isaiah. I'm going to read to you a passage from Isaiah chapter 36, because it's really an astounding uh, uh, in, in what happens here, but it's also very intricately described of what is happening in history. So as we read about it in Isaiah chapter 36, this is what we find the setting to be. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Now Hezekiah would be living perhaps in the palace in uh, Jerusalem. So this is where he's located. And if you think about, there's been lots of kingdoms in the, in, in, or lots of fortified cities within the kingdom of Judah, and those have already been taken. So this enemy is already exercising his muscle against the people of Judah. Things aren't looking good, in other words, for the, the, the nation of Judah, so much so that the king and his army are hidden behind these walls, these final walls, in Jerusalem. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. I mean, that is very detailed description. Exactly where he's standing and who is there. And notice one of them is the recorder, perhaps reporting on this eyewitness account. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? I want to pause just right there. Do you think about that? The statement he's making is right along with what the psalmist is talking about. Do you think that mere words are strategy and power in war? Or is there something else? Does there have to be some other force behind them? That's what the king is challenging. Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord, our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, 
Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. There's another detail, specific. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vineyard, of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? So again, he's, he, is, he is referring to real historical things. He has been marching through these cities after cities, these capital cities after capital cities of these kingdoms, and he's laid each one to waste. And if you'll notice what was in that list, Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Every one of them worshipped a God, and every one of them fell. He's offering historical evidence why you should listen to me. Don't listen to King Hezekiah who says something different. So it was not, it was not a pleasant setting. It was a very desperate setting. I mean, there really isn't any logical human reason to have any kind of hope that they might be freed. So that to obey this, this uh, general of the Assyrian army makes all the sense in the world if you're operating from within the context of what you can see. So what happens? What happens? Well, the story continues. We jump down to verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. O Lord of hosts, O God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from this hand, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. So Hezekiah has a, a bigger perspective that he has learned. And in response to Hezekiah's prayer, well, the Lord shows up. And he does something that there is no way could have happened without him. Something that's utterly remarkable. 
I'm always amazed that there's only one verse dedicated to it. But it's so remarkable. This is what we read in verse uh, 36 of chapter 37. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Do you think that would leave an impression? <laughs> then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh, and he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god. Adrimelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with the sword, and after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. So what we're seeing here is this is, this is not a parable. There are all these specific details given by the historian, the eyewitness accounts of what exactly happened. What happened when they came outside the walls of Jerusalem? What did they actually say? Who heard it? Who was there? Names are written down. What was actually said was written down. Hezekiah's prayer is recorded. And then, after the evening, they wake up and they find, how many was it? 185,000 dead bodies. Do you think they were busy the next couple of days? <laughs> Dealing with that. And what did those 185,000 bodies leave behind? All their spoil, well, snake, yes, but all their spoil as well. Their armor, their weapons. All of their stuff is left. I mean, all there is is this visible evidence that something mighty happened in their midst. And this is what the psalmist is reflecting upon. He's saying, look, I want you to sing a song when you gather for worship. Now, this is another thing that's true. I know we tend to look back historically and we think all this stuff happened, and it's as though we picture everything we read in the Bible as having happened at the same time. As though the psalmist himself is writing about things that he perhaps was an eyewitness to. That's probably not the case. The psalmist was probably writing dozens, if not hundreds of years after this particular event. So for him, it also was ancient history. But it was real history. So I don't want us to be thinking, well, that's ancient history, therefore we have to dismiss it. No, no. We cannot dismiss ancient history. We may not be able to explain it from a human perspective how it possibly could have happened, but we can't dismiss it. It's real history. So when the psalmist is inviting the people of God as they gather together to worship to sing this song, he's singing about this particular event because this particular event teaches us something. It teaches us something about God, specifically. So let's read those first six verses again, thinking about what we were learning about God because of this historical event. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains, full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. Both rider and horse lay stunned. 
So what do we see? What are we learning about the nature of God? Well, I mean, he summarizes it. Who can stand before you when your anger is roused? That's one thing. You know, God is a mighty God. He is a mighty, mighty God. Learning about that, he is full of glory. I think that's the idea, especially in the, in the, in the age in which this was taking place, the, 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 in the Iron Age, the age of heroes, the, the hero sought to make himself known by achieving something great in battle. That was his glory. So what God is revealing himself here to be this great warrior. He is a God that is showing off his glory, his power, his might to the people. And not only do we see that, but it's an interesting description. It's not easy to see in the English translation. But in verse 2, when he says his abode has been established in Salem, it's an interesting word that he uses, abode. We just think of that as a dwelling place. But it's a specific word. There's multiple words that you can use to translate abode in Hebrew. You know, one would be an abode of something that you might build for yourself, a hut. The other would be a natural setting in which you, you found yourself because it was a refuge. That's the kind he's referring to here. And the, and the best analogy, perhaps, to understand this is this would be not an abode, but this is a lair. So it's like a lion would find a place of safety and lair from which he is going to hide that he might then pounce. The, a good, a good uh, parallel would, would come from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25, and verse 38. He says, like a lion, he has left his lair, for their land has become a waste because of the sword of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. So there's this picture that the psalmist is painting. Yes, he is mighty. He is showing off his glory, his might. And he's like a lion that is in his lair, just ready to pounce on his prey. So it looked like, from a human perspective, Hezekiah hiding behind the walls when all the other cities Fortified cities have been taken and destroyed. It looks like he's in this place of weakness. But what we're learning as we see what happened historically, what the psalmist is saying is that that wasn't a place of weakness. It was a lair. And he was just waiting like a lion to pounce. And where is that lair? He says that in the opening verses. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established. His lair has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. Salem is a shortened form of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And what was significant about that place is not necessarily where it was, but why it was. It was the place that was called uh, God's dwelling place. He says, this is where I will put my name. This will be the place I am represented as my dwelling place on earth. So he's saying, if this is where I put my dwelling place, it is my lair, it is the place from which I will pounce, and I will destroy all the enemies that are threatening my family. That's what we're learning about God. Who is, who is it that can stand before God? I wouldn't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. So this is the historical setting that helps us to learn something about the nature of God. He is full of glory. In his lair, he is like a lion ready to pounce on his prey. So how does this shape the way we live our life? What's the last lesson? And we, we can go and read the last part of the psalm together, beginning verse 7. But you, 
You are to be feared. So that's the lesson. You, Lord, are to be feared. Where initially it seemed like we should be fearing this Assyrian army, that's the visible threat. But really what we find, because of this historical event, it's not them who should be feared, it's you who should be feared. For who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? Now in verse 8, he begins to move from the local representative place where God dwells to the actual place where God dwells. From the heavens you utter judgment, the earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. So we've moved from this particular situation, this particular setting on earth, and this particular historical event to the more universal truth that we're finding. That's, that's the evidence that he's offering. Here's an army that couldn't stand up to God. So now let's extrapolate that to the universe, universal. There is none who can stand before God. This is the historical evidence that he's providing. From the heavens you utter judgment, the earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you, the remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. I love that statement. Even when man is demonstrating his fury, because we see that a lot throughout history, there's lots of times and reasons when man looks like he's in great peril, especially the people of God. But what we're learning is while that may be the case, ultimately, even that wrath of man is only allowed to be stirred up because in the end, it's going to bring about the glory of God. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let our all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. So here we find the psalmist is helping to teach the worshiper that you serve a God, you worship a God who is to be feared above all powers on this earth, that he operates from his lair, which is the place where he has made his dwelling place, in order to pounce on those who would come and threaten God's people. So who is saved in all the earth? Those who are humble before him. Those who are looking to him for their rescue. The people who are rescued were those who were behind the walls of the lair of God. Now, we live in centuries after this psalmist wrote this about this historical event. We have more historical events that we can look to to ground our faith. When we can look at the great events that happened in the Old Testament with regard to the Exodus, certainly that is referred to often in the psalmist as a reason why Israel is to have hope. But from our perspective, we look not only to those, but we also look to the historical event that unfolded with the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. It happened in history. You know, one of the great things about traveling to Israel, as we did a few, uh, about a month ago or so, was we're, it's just brought home that all of this faith that we have is built upon history. We're walking through the same streets in the city of Jerusalem where Jesus himself walked, where Hezekiah himself walked. We saw the area where these walls would have been, that these armies were outside yelling up to the people on there. We walked through what they call the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering, the place in which Jesus heard the pronouncement that he is to be put to death 
on a cross, and the cross was put on his back, and he had to walk through the streets of the city of Jerusalem to the place where they called uh, Golgotha, the place of the skull where it would be erected for all the world to see high up on a hill. We saw that place where they think it happened. We saw each of those places along the Via Della Rosa, which are probably not exact places because there's different buildings that were there now, but they got as close as they could. And then not a few hundred feet away from the, the, the place of the skull, there is this tomb. There was a cave that was carved out outside so that now it looks like a structure, but inside it was a cave in which Jesus' body was placed. But then on the third day, was discovered to not be there. And then there's all these eyewitness accounts that this person, Jesus, who everyone saw was dead on the cross, proved by the soldier who came to wet, was going to break his legs, found out that he was already dead. How did he know? We put the, put the spear through his side, saw the blood and the water drain out, the evidence that he had died, and put in the tomb, and then was not there three days later, and then appeared to his disciples... Not once, not twice, but many, many times over the course of the next 40 days. Paul says at other times he even appeared to more than 500 at a time. And to Paul himself later on, as he was on that road to Damascus. What we learn here is this is a historical event. A man by the name of Jesus was crucified in the city of Jerusalem, and on the Three days, or on the third day after his death, he was discovered to not be there and was alive and presenting himself to many people. Those are historical facts. And now where is God's dwelling place as a result of that happening? Well, first of all, we discover by those evidence, as the, as the New Testament writers teach us to, to, to interpret what, why was it that Jesus was able to rise from the dead? Well, he wasn't just a man. He was also God come in the flesh. And why was his death significant? Because he himself wasn't a, wasn't a, a sinful man. Because God's wrath was being poured out upon those who's, who were humble before God. Those who hid behind his walls of refuge. It's the same event that was going on in the time of the Exodus with the Passover, right? The angel of death is going to come home. Come through, that same angel of death that killed 185,000 perhaps went to destroy all the people in the land of Egypt. But Moses had told the people, because God had told Moses, he said, look, you want to escape this angel of death, this lion who's in his lair ready to pounce, well, here's how you do it. You, you, you slaughter a lamb and you take its blood and you paint it on the doorpost of your house so that when he sees that blood over you, he will pass over and you won't be put to death. So when Jesus came on that Passover, and that was when he was crucified, what we understand about that is his death is what covers over those of us so that when the angel of death does come, and who can stand before him? Well, those who are humble and trusting in him and are hidden behind the walls of his lair. And I love the walls of his lair now when you think about where is the temple today? By the way, it's not in Jerusalem. There's a mosque built there now. It's not there. But there's still a temple. You guys know where it is. It has stones that are living 
as Peter says. They're living stones. And as they are together, they, are, they become a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, as Paul writes to the church in Corinth. In other words, the church is the new temple, which means the church is the new Jerusalem, which means the church is the lair from which this God is just waiting to pounce on his enemies. That's kind of frightening in a way, but it's also reassuring for those of us who go humbly before the Lord because he's opened our eyes to see that there is no one who can stand before him. That's why he tells the people, he's, look, perform the vows that you have made because God will hold you to account. He is real. He's not the imagination of some ideology or philosophy. He's real, even though you can't see him. And the evidence of that is these real historical events. So I just want to encourage you this morning that you are in the house of the Lord, the lair from which the Lord himself will pounce on his enemies. And who can stand before him? Only those whose blood is covering them. That's who. If you have never taken the moment, taken the time to humbly bow before God and ask that his blood might cover you, well, then you need to be afraid. <laughs> but also, you need to hear him inviting you to do that. And ask the Lord to hide you behind his walls so that you might be saved when the enemy comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that we get to sing songs about things that happen in very real history. Things that we can't argue about ideologically. Things that we don't get to try to reason out of because they simply happened. You show us that our faith is not rooted on a cleverness of our thinking, but in historical events that have unfolded before us particularly in the person of Jesus Christ, who died in our place and rose again to demonstrate his final victory over this death, inviting us to humbly go before him that when that angel of death does come, that he might pass over us. Would you help us to walk in light of this? In Jesus' name, amen.